We're going to read from 1 Timothy. This is on page 991 in the Pew Bible. We're going to read from uh, verse 12 through the end of the chapter, chapter 1. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this treason that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By, rejoice, sorry, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Word of the Lord. Well, thank you. Christine. And would you pray with me? Oh Lord, we thank you indeed for a living and true word that people who would otherwise be grasping about blindly on this earth, trying to find our way along and figure things out. Oh Lord, that by your grace, you've spoken and you've even illuminated our understanding of what you've said by your spirit. So Lord, we thank you that that is true and we pray that you would make your word live to us today. You know all the needs in this room, everybody who now is listening and watching online or will later, you know every set of ears that will hear this message in every heart that it'll reach into. So God, would you minister as you know those needs and as you intend to meet them. And so we ask that you'd speak, Lord, your word by your spirit through your servant to your people for your glory in Jesus' name, amen. Well, many of you uh, may be familiar with the novel, The Prince and the Pauper, uh, Mark Twain. I was probably assigned to read that some point, uh, at some point along the way in school. I can assure you I didn't read it uh, if I was assigned it. Um, but uh, I was probably tested on it at some point. You know, some of y'all know the experience. But The Prince and the Pauper is this story about, you might have guessed, a prince and a pauper. So uh, the, but the, the, the Prince and the Pauper, these are uh, boys born on the same day. They look 
identical. And it happens that one day when the prince is out um, in town, he crosses paths with the pauper. And uh, he ends up through a chain of events, whatever, inviting the pauper back to the palace. And so they talk and and get to know each other a little bit. And they're fascinated with each other's stories and the fact that they look so much alike and they just decide to switch places temporarily. And in the course of that, the, pop, the, the prince looking like the pauper gets driven out of the palace. And he ends up, as a consequence, um, having to experience some of the hardship that the pauper experiences all the time. And of course, the pauper is in the palace um, experiencing what it's like to be a prince. And, um, you know, I think it's sort of by the end of the story, the, the, the prince is, uh, is back in the palace and restored to his position and that kind of thing. But the pauper is made uh, the king's ward. So he's given this privileged position um, in service to the, I said the king's ward, the prince's. Might have been the king's. I don't know. I didn't read the thing like I told you. So, uh, it's better to be honest, right? Because some of you, anyway. Um, but the, but it's, a, it's, a fitting, it's a fitting metaphor for even the passage that we come to today and just the story of what God has done for us in Christ. That the prince became a pauper, that the paupers might be princes and princesses, so to speak. Um, and the analogy breaks down a little bit. It's not a perfect uh, fit in the story. But I, I think that's, that's a helpful um, extended metaphor to run through passages like this as we really try to grasp hold of what, what is it that God has done in the fact that Jesus came to save sinners. And that's, as you've seen, the title of today's sermon. And so as we unpack this text, we, we need to be reminded probably of a couple of things here as we continue through First Timothy. First of all, that Timothy, who's the recipient of this letter, is pastoring in Ephesus. That's helpful, um, I think, in part because some of what Paul says to Timothy here is echoed in Ephesus, or really, I suppose, this echoes what he had said to the church in Ephesus in the book of Ephesians. And he actually expounds upon it a little bit there, and we'll visit some of that. But he's in Ephesus contending with false teachers. His charge, you remember at the opening of the letter, was to remain in Ephesus in order to, teach, to charge people not to teach any different doctrine. Because those teachers are preoccupied with things that really aren't major, but they're making major majors out of minors. Um, they're probably things that make them feel more spiritual and wiser than others. There's, it doesn't say that here, but that often tends to be the case. That in departing from the gospel message, there's usually uh, some reason why that's not satisfactory. But anyway, their teaching was worthless and they'd lost their grip on the gospel. And the, and the flock that they're supposed to be shepherding is at risk of uh, losing their grasp on the truth of it too, getting muddled. And as I suggested a couple of weeks ago, this tendency has been present and persistent in the church ever since then. This tendency, that is, to, to get bored with the simplicity of the gospel. 
and to look for more exciting or intriguing substitutes. Those substitutes will often come in the form of self-help messages as a substitute for the gospel. Sometimes, as I mentioned, they'll come in the form of some new teaching, some new take on the scripture, some new spiritual revelation or whatever. Those tend both to cater to selfish pride for those who are propagating them. But in in actual fact, we don't hear the gospel and respond to the gospel and then outgrow our need for the gospel. We We don't outgrow our need for the gospel. In fact, if you are growing in Christian maturity, you're growing in your need to preach the gospel to yourself daily. And conversely, if you think If you think that you've outgrown your need for the simple message of the gospel, you are in desperate need of hearing the gospel. Let me say that again, because I'm really not overstating it when I say that. If you think that you've outgrown your need for the simplicity of the gospel, the simple message of the gospel, you're in desperate need of hearing the gospel, because you may not understand the gospel at all. If you're not always impressed, increasingly impressed of your need of it. And so Paul tells us here, the heart of that gospel is that Jesus came to save sinners of which he says, I am the foremost. And so I just want to hang this message on kind of a a two prongs today, if you will. And it's simply this, that your sin is, is worse than you think. But God's grace is greater than you can imagine. Your sin is is worse than you think, but God's grace is greater than you can imagine. And so let's sort of take it under those headings first, that your sin's worse than you think. And and, and it's sort of true uh, of Saul, perhaps, initially first. Saul, who was also called Paul, um, who's telling of a a little bit about himself. It's interesting, uh, just by God's providence, as we are falling on this passage um, that on the traditional church calendar, which really isn't a part of our rhythm um, in our church or whatever, on the traditional church calendar, yesterday commemorated uh, the conversion of Saul, uh, which I thought was interesting timing. That's really just trivial. But Paul had his conversion on his mind as he was writing this. And it, it really is a striking and vivid picture of God's grace. And it's extraordinary, for sure, if you remember his conversion. I mean, it's extraordinary, no doubt, but it is not altogether different from the conversion we experience um, every one of us. In other words, every sinner who comes to Jesus experiences a measure of what uh, Saul did. And so you may remember in Acts chapter 9 that uh, at the time, again, the one who became known as Paul and the apostle Paul, as we know him, he was Saul, a, a Jew of Jews, zealous for the things of God and persecuting the church. And he, he asked for permission to just go round up Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem for trial. He is committed to persecution. I mean, he's all in. He's on his way to Damascus to do that very thing. And Jesus meets him 
on the road there. And he strikes him blind, he knocks him down and commands him, go into the city to the house of Ananias, he'll tell you what's next. And of course, Ananias does, explains the gospel to him um, and he's saved. Scales fall off of his eyes, he's no longer blinded. So it's, it's interesting that in his life, physically, uh, the way God saves him, you know, serves as a metaphor of the way he serves, uh, saves the rest of us. That, that, that we're blinded to spiritual truth and that just by his grace, he removes the blinders. We see what we couldn't see before that and then we respond in faith to it. That's how he was saved. Look, Jesus didn't woo him. He did, Jesus didn't say, hey, I'll meet you halfway, but you gotta do your part. He just said, bam, you're mine. Go into town. I'll tell you what to, you know, what to do from there. Just sovereign grace in the life of a persecutor. And so Paul's reflection on that is, it says here in uh, verse 12, He's recalling that that's why he says this about himself, that he was a blasphemer, he was a persecutor, and he was an insolent opponent. Your translation may say something like a violent aggressor. He wasn't a seeker. He wasn't a nice guy who just hadn't really discerned all the truth. A persecutor a blasphemer, an insolent opponent. And he goes on to say, the foremost of sinners. Christian author uh, Matt Smethurst uh, noted that, that essentially the progression over the course of Paul's conversion was, and, and whether this chronology is actually significant or not, uh, I don't know, it is uh, telling, but that in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, which he wrote um, in, in about the year 55 anyway. So he says in 1 Corinthians 15, I'm the least of the apostles. And then a few years later when he wrote Ephesians, he says, I'm the least of all the saints. And a few years later when he writes to Timothy, he says, I'm the worst of all sinners. And this, this author says, Christian maturity is downward. It's growing not less aware of your unworthiness, but more. Christian maturity is downward, growing more aware of our unworthiness. Which does not mean, by the way, growth in shame or guilt, or just the need to grovel before God. but it just means growing in a sense of how needy we are of the grace of God all the time. In other words, I can't grow in grace unless I grow in my sense of unworthiness because the closer I get to Jesus, the more his brightness shines on me and just reveals more spots, right? They're there all the time. I just don't see him. But the closer I get to Jesus, some of those spots are cleansed. And yet it reveals I'm a whole lot more spotted than I thought I was. 
I'm just downright leopard-like, you know? And so if Paul says he's the foremost of sinners, I call second. I'm second foremost. Anybody want to say third? Okay, yeah, we had a hand quick in the back. Okay, yeah. So you already, you already missed it. But in other words, this really needs to be the inclination of our heart. That the longer we've walked with the Lord, the fewer people there are for us to look down upon. Like I realize the depth of my depravity enough that I can't look down on you from where I am. And that's, again, that's a, that's a wonderful thing. That is, that is growth, not downgrade. But see, the truth is, even then, we don't really grasp the gravity of our sin because we do not grasp the holiness of God. We don't understand the holiness of God and what an offense to him sin is and how we can regard it as no big deal. But our sin is worse than we think. But number two, God's grace is greater than you can imagine. And see, because it's what was true of Paul is, is true of us. Again, maybe the circumstances and, and the nature of our sin is lesser in degree, perhaps. But it says he considered us faithful in verse 12. That if what's true of Paul is true of us too, he considered us faithful even though we were oppositional. So it says he judged me faithful. Again, in other translations it says considered me faithful. He wasn't faithful, right? Are you following the story? He wasn't faithful. He was a persecutor. But God treated him as one who's faithful. God wasn't mistaken about it. He didn't get the wrong guy. He regards him as faithful even though he's oppositional. He appoints us to his service instead of condemning us. We received mercy and overflowing grace, it says in verses 13 through 15, so that he would appear more glorious because of the grace he's demonstrated to us. And this is, this is so important for us to understand about the plan that God has in Christ for saving people, and that is that by his grace, he is more glorified. He looks more glorious by meeting people on the Damascus roads of our lives and just snatching us out of the oppositional place we're in. I mean, it's hard to imagine, for me anyway, a greater offense against a king than insurrection. Right? I've never known any kings personally. I've never lived under the reign of any kings. I've seen movies about kings. And I think every time somebody is part of any sort of revolt, insurrection, or coup, uh, they don't get forgiven. They're not pardoned. 
When the plot against the king is discovered, the conspirators go to the gallows, not to the king's court. They're enemies. So they're treated as enemies. And usually swiftly. Even if they're relatives, they're treated as enemies, not servants. But, but he says here, are you catching this? That this is, this is how he regards the sinner. Is that even though we're enemies, he makes us servants in his, in his court instead of sending us to the gallows. And he did it for Paul, but Paul had also explained this to the Ephesians, that Jesus had done the same thing for him. Again, Paul's, Paul doesn't claim even that his salvation experience is unique to him. He said to the Ephesians in chapter 2, you were dead in trespasses and sins. Do you remember this passage? In which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom you all once walked, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. That's your background. Not just a little bit bad, okay? By the way, it's my background too, if it makes you feel any better. But not just a little bit bad, insolent opponents. We have conspired with the enemy, is what he says to the Ephesians. And we're by nature children of wrath. And then verse 4 says, but God. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly places. He raised us with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places that in the ages to come, he might show what, is the, what are the riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Do you hear that theme ringing again? He did it to show the riches of his grace by his kindness to us. Kindness to those who were enemies. Kindness to those who were dead in trespasses and sins. And he just made us alive. For it's by grace you've been saved. Through faith. And that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works. Lest any man should boast. That's what Paul says to the Ephesians. And now he's writing a brief recap of his own experience to Timothy ministering to the Ephesians. That's the picture of grace, beloved. That's the picture of grace because your sin is worse than you think, but his grace is greater than we can imagine. And so what do we, what do, we do with that? Because again, you've been, if you've been in church for long enough, you've heard that over and over to the point that you get deaf to it. Like your ears, you, you know, it's like, it's like hearing loss or whatever. There are certain frequencies you can't hear anymore when you get a certain age. And it's like if you've been uh, around the faith for long enough, it's almost like we, we quit hearing 
some of this. And yet it never, it never grows boring. It never grows old. We never outgrow our need to hear us, hear it. And so, so you and I were paupers who were just plucked out of the slums and placed in the palace. As servants of the king, privileged servants of the king, given clean linens to wear, given a place at the king's table, So here, let me ask you this. How, how do we as paupers ever look down on other paupers? You tracking with me there? Like how, if we understand that that's our story, how in the world do we ever look at somebody else and go, you need to clean yourself up. But see, that, 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 one, that is one, one of the best measures of really where we are spiritually is how judgmental and critical and condescending are we of other people. Because the, the, the more we are those things, the less we really understand the grace that we've received. It doesn't mean maybe that we've never understood it, but we've certainly forgotten it. And this is what it ought to produce in us. In fact, Paul goes on in his letter to the Ephesians to say after he un just overwhelms them with the story of what God has done for them by grace. And then he comes around to chapter four and says, therefore walk in a manner worthy of the calling of Christ with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Why? Because it doesn't, because how could you live any other way toward people if you really understand the grace that you've received? How could you be anything other than forbearing and humble and gentle. Well, it's a bit of a rhetorical question, isn't it? I'm quite capable of being something other than humble and forbearing and gentle, okay? If you're not sure how to be, I could probably give you a lesson. You, you ought, I ought not to, and you ought not to ask. I'm just saying, I'm not, I'm not saying that as if I don't know how to. It's just, you, you, you follow what, what, the, what the scripture tells us is it's unfitting for the believer who really understands grace to be ungracious, much less critical and judgmental toward other people. To forget that we were paupers or to think that somehow we did something to deserve as a pauper to be in the palace or at least if he was going to come pick a pauper to be in the palace, we're better than the other paupers. Look, none of it was true. None of it was true. You're just plucked out of the slums and placed there by the grace of God that he would appear more glorious because of the grace with which he has saved us. And there is nothing for us to do but to thank him and to love other people 
as a response to that. And so it's one of the reasons that I say sort of the, the, the actions we can take in response to that. That in all of your personal prayer times, include a time of confession. Uh, that, is, that is one of the most uh, spiritually enriching habits you can form, I would say, in, in, the, in a short and simple way. And there's something about us that pushes back against that because we don't want to say, well, I, you know, I've been forgiven. I don't want to be sort of heaping my sin on top of me over and over again. That's not the point of the thing. It is to be reminded of the fact that I'm still a spotted thing. And I'm not condemned by that. See, I'm forgiven of it. But it's a reminder, an increasing understanding of how much I've been forgiven of. Of how great his grace really has been toward me. And confession in your prayers will do that for you. Um, the second thing I would say is that maybe there are some here are, who, who are the proverbial pauper still living outside the palace and you've never heard the invitation or you've never understood it. Maybe, you've, maybe you did think you needed to clean yourself up and get yourself worthy to go into the palace and you're not quite there. Maybe you just missed the invitation altogether. And so the invitation is freely offered by the king to come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. That as we sang in the opening song, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That just come to the king. That's the response. Just come to the king and he's ready to receive you. But the simple message of the gospel is always relevant to every one of us and it always calls for a response. And if we'll look inside of ourselves, we'll always find what our personal response can be. And if we don't see in us um, what he's speaking to, if we ask him, he'll reveal it. Well, let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your grace. We need to understand it more and more. We thank you, Lord, that once again, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so uh, the reminders of our sin and sinfulness is not to condemn us, but to give us, on one hand, greater cause to rejoice that the debt you paid for us was even greater than we knew last week because we've understand, understood it more and more. So God, would you, would you move on our hearts? Move us? 
to a deeper understanding of ourselves in relation to you, of our sin and of your grace. And God, would you please change our attitude and posture and our language toward other people that we might have even the inability to find fault in others. because it's obscured by the fault we have in ourselves. Lord, make us gracious people. And God, I pray by your grace and by your spirit, you would draw people to yourself. Even today, those who have never known you, Lord, I pray that somehow the simple truth of the gospel, that Jesus died paying the price for the sins of people, and rose from the grave to secure that forgiveness, Lord, that that simple message would penetrate hearts today when it never has before, and that you would claim lives as your very own, that people would be invited and received into the palace and that things would never be the same. So we surrender to you. Pray you'd work according to your will in us, in Jesus' name. Amen.